Well, I grew up in the 80s. I grew up playing 2D, two-dimensional video games like that move from left to right like this, like Super Mario Brothers, right? Get Mario doing his thing, right? I mean, this is how video games this is how video games were. I liked Contra. I liked Super Contra. Okay, Th- those are the jam, man. I, I love those games. Uh, but then as I grew up, uh, games began to transition into 3D. The first 3D game I remember was GoldenEye. It was a Bond game. And it just blew my mind, right? Because it was no longer 2D, like left or right. It was like a whole world. And, and then you had evolving into, into games like Fortnite and things like that, where, where I just, I was so lost because you, you couldn't, play just with like one direction anymore. You, you were going multiple directions and like moving at the same time with like two joysticks, right? And I couldn't do that. I, I was lost. 3D just totally passed me. And then you get today, things like 4D, where you're actually like virtual reality in the game where you're looking and seeing and moving and walking. And um, yeah, I can't, I can't handle this, right? It's just too much for my two-dimensional Super Mario brain. I, I can't handle it. So, so, so you might think, well, why? What, what does this have to do with anything? Well, here's my hope this morning. That, that, that maybe the, the Christmas story would overwhelm your heart and mind as we look at it in 3D. As we look at it in 3D, if you got your Bible, go to Luke chapter two. We're in Luke two, verse one through 21 today in our study of Luke. If you haven't been here, if you've missed any of our study, verse by verse study of the gospel of Luke, you can catch up on our app, our podcast. We're going verse by verse through the gospel of Luke. And we're looking at Christmas in 3D today because all of scripture up to this point, all of human history up to this point is, is looking towards this moment. This is the fulfillment of all of history and scripture that has come up to this moment. This is where God ultimately and finally completely reveals himself in the person of Jesus. That's what Hebrews tells us, that, that God spoke and revealed himself to uh, the, the prophets as we read in the Old Testament, but ultimately and finally and completely, God has revealed himself to us through his son, Jesus. This is where God writes himself into the story. C.S. Lewis said, there's, there's no way that Hamlet can ever know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the story. And the atheist C.S. Lewis became a Christian, became a follower of Jesus because he realized that we could know God because God revealed himself and made himself known by writing himself into the story, into our story so that we might know him and have a relationship with him. And that is what's happening here in Luke chapter one through 21. God is writing himself into the story. This is the collision of heaven and earth. And so my prayer this morning is that you will see the length, width and height of Christmas as we look at it in 3D. And we're gonna look at it in 3D by examining the three titles given to Jesus by the angel here in Luke chapter two. So we're gonna read one through 21, follow along with this in our app. Well, the verses here on the screen are in your Bible. But as we do that, as we read this passage of scripture this morning, uh, we're gonna do two different things that are going to become a little bit more normal for us. Here's the first one. Here's the first different thing we're going to begin to do as a church. When we read through a passage of scripture like this, like in its entirety, we're going to stand. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter four to devote yourselves and your churches to the public reading of scripture. And so that's one of the reasons we study the scripture verse by verse here. We're supposed to devote ourselves to the public reading of the scripture. 
In Ezra chapter eight, when Ezra uh, is leading the nation of Israel in their kind of return and in, in revival and in, in, in obeying and following the word of the Lord once again, as they have made their way back to Jerusalem, they were in captivity, now they're back. And it says in Ezra chapter eight, Ezra breaks out the book of the law. He opens it and all of Israel stood to their feet as he read the book of the law from morning, early morning to noon to lunchtime, okay? Now we're not gonna be here for four hours. It's already lunchtime, okay? So don't, don't worry about that, all right? But, but we are going to read the word of the Lord. We're gonna stand here in just a second in honor and in respect of the word of God as we see happening often throughout the scripture. Ezra opened the book of the law, all of Israel stood and as he read it, it said they would fall on their knees in repentance. They would lift up their hands in worship just as Ezra read the book and the priests explained it. And so here in a minute, when we read, we're gonna, we're gonna stand in honor and in respect of the word of God. It's something we're gonna begin to do when we read large portions of scripture like this. Secondly. Here's the second thing we're going to do when we read passages like this. We're going to have one of you come up and read the verse. Okay, so we're just going to call out. No, I'm just kidding. We've already planned ahead who's going to come and read. So we're not going to freak anybody out, all right? But we're going to have uh, some participation from our spiritual family, from our church family. Uh, we're going to have people come up and, and read uh, these passages to us. Uh, one, to kind of get some participation from you guys and what we're doing. And then, and then secondly, kind of gives you uh, some people to, to know. You get to know who they are and what they do and some different people in our church, some different leaders in our church. So today, Emily's going to come and read. So Emily, if you'll come up here and, and join me, let's stand together. We're going to read from Luke chapter two, verse one through 21, read along in your copy of the scripture or follow along on the screens with us. Emily. Hi, I'm Emily Caparell. I currently serve on the prayer team as well as our city U leadership team. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others and the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, 
Let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished, but Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. It was just as the angel had told them. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Thank you, Emily. You may be seated. All right, let's, let's, let's break this down. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's look at the three dimensions of Christmas so that we can make sure we're getting the, the, the full scope of what's going on here. And my, my hope again is for those of us who maybe have grown up in church, we've heard this story, we're very familiar with this story, that as we kind of break this down and we look at three different dimensions of Jesus, three different dimensions of Christmas, that it will awaken your heart all over again uh, to, the, to the truth that we find here in the word of God. So, so if you take a, a, a 2D graph, if you were to start with a 2D graph, that that horizontal axis on a 2D graph, if we're starting in 2D, is the X axis. So that's where we're going to start. The X axis of Christmas. And if you think about it, an X axis, it's a horizontal line. It's kind of like a timeline. And so that's what we're looking at now in the X axis. We're looking at the context of what's going on here in this passage, the, the historical backdrop, the, the, the scriptural backdrop, what's going on here on this, on the ground level of Christmas in context. Well, the angel says, in verse one, or rather Luke says in verse one that it's during this time the Roman emperor Augustus is ruling. Now, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, uh, thought to be Octavian, okay, is recognized by, the, by Rome as the divine savior who has brought peace to the world. Augustus allowed himself to be referred to or called the son of God. That's how he was referred to as the son of God. He issues this census, and in a Roman census, you had to go back to your ancestral land. So that's why Joseph and Mary are headed back to David's, or, or Joseph's ancestral land, rather. They're heading back to participate in this census. Now, this wasn't just a count. This is also where you would pay taxes and where citizens of Rome would swear an oath of allegiance to Rome, saying and confessing that Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Like Caesar is God. They would confess that at times like this. Now here's what's interesting. The emperor makes this decree that we're going to engage in this census, drawing everybody back to their ancestral land. So when Joseph and Mary head back to Bethlehem, which is where Joseph is from, the emperor actually unknowingly is participating in the sovereign plan of God. It's, it's wild. It was prophesied by Micah that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And, and so whenever we might think that a leader or a nation or a government or a form of government is in control, make no mistake, God is always in 
control. God is always at work. He's always moving and working behind the scenes. And we learned in our study of Daniel, if you were here at the beginning of the year, that it is God who rises kings up and brings kings down. It's God who allows nations to rise up and it is God who brings nations down. God is at work always. And even through an evil emperor like Octavian, like Caesar Augustus, who allows himself to be called the son of God, the divine savior of the world. God is using Augustus for his own glory and for our good as he fulfills God's prophecy through the prophet Micah by issuing this decree for this census. Now, the angel's announcement here that Luke records is then obviously a direct confrontation to the system, to the belief system of the culture of this day that would say Caesar is Lord and peace comes through Rome. There was an idea called the peace of Rome, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And the belief was that through the power and glory of Rome, you might receive and experience peace. If you would submit yourself to the power and glory of Rome, then you would know peace. Then your people would know peace. And so the, the angel's announcement here that Luke records is in direct confrontation to this whole belief system in this Roman culture that Caesar is Lord and that peace comes through Caesar. The angels say, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord and peace, ultimate peace only comes through Jesus, not through a ruler, not through a form or a system of government. You're not gonna know peace when a certain party's in power. You're not gonna know peace when you've reached a certain financial position. Peace comes through Christ alone. Typically, the birth or the assumption of a new emperor or a victory in battle was called good news. It was called gospel. It was the gospel for all people when a new emperor was born and when he rose to power, they called it the gospel. It was the good news. There's a new emperor over all people. And the angel shows up and says, I've got gospel for you. I've got good news of great joy the same words used to describe the birth of the ascension of a new emperor that would affect all people were used to describe the birth and reign of this universal God King. And when the angel shows up to deliver God's message, who, who, who does he come to? Does he come to the rich and the powerful? Does he come to royalty? Does he come to the emperor himself? No. In fact, the first person that we see God really speaking to through his messenger in Luke chapter one is an old angry, bitter man. You might remember if you were here in uh, Luke chapter one, when we were talking about God speaking to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah has been faithful, but we also learn that Zechariah has got a little bit of anger going on, right? He's a little bit bitter with God that God has not answered his prayer. He has not given them a son. And so Zechariah in rebellion and with some bitterness kind of tests God and says, hey, if this is real, because this is what you're saying is impossible, that we're going to have a baby in our old age, then, then prove it. And he asked God for a sign. And, and if you were here, then you remember us saying that never goes well. It, it never goes well in the gospels when people ask Jesus, when they ask God for a sign, prove it, prove yourself to us that it never, it never goes well. God often by his own sovereign initiative gives signs and proofs of himself. But it never goes well when, when a sign is demanded for. And so the angel had to be asking God, God, we're going to kill him, right? Right? 
I mean, he, he's challenging you. He's asking for a sign. Like he's not believing in your power. We're going to kill him, right? Like that's what we should do. And God's like, yeah, we probably should. Uh, but we're going to have grace. He doesn't deserve it, but we're going to show grace and we're going to bless him anyways with a child in Zachariah and Elizabeth's old age. Then, then who do we go? Surely next he goes to some king or some rich person or some powerful person, right? No, he goes to a 13 or 14 year old peasant girl and Mary and announces the good news, the gospel, the good news of great joy that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, to the savior of the world, to, to God. It goes to a 13, 14 year old peasant girl. Now, surely though, this announcement came to like Zechariah and Mary, like in Rome, right? Some, some sort of important, like large, big city, like Rome, right? Like a powerful city, like Rome. Nope. Okay, then maybe Jerusalem, right? It was the center of like Israelite worship. That's where the temple, surely that's where God is delivering this gospel, this good news of great joy. Nope, they're wrong again. Nazareth, a region like El Paso, okay? Just nothing good there, right? And there's no reason to go. <laughs> I mean, just barren, okay? No, no reason to go. Uh, I'm sorry if you're from El Paso, but, but then, okay, then, you would think, okay, it's, it's in Nazareth, but surely it's like this nice like city like Dallas, you know, in, in Nazareth. Nope, you'd be wrong again. He goes to some fields outside of Bethlehem and speaks to some shepherds. It's like Lubbock, right? Dirt fields and ranchers, okay? That's, that's where God's going, okay? He's going to the lowest of the low here. That's, that's what's happening here. And, and, and this news that... Jesus is going to be born. The Messiah is going to be born in, in Bethlehem and, and bringing Joseph and Mary back to their ancestral town, to Joseph's ancestral town of Bethlehem, much like, much like Lubbock. But, but Bethlehem means in Hebrew, house of bread. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. If you eat from me, you will never hunger again. And it's Bethlehem where Jesus is born, the house of of bread. Bethlehem here in Luke chapter two is called the city of David, not Jerusalem, not the, not the city he was probably most known for, the, the, the city that he had everything to do with, with its wealth and, and prosperity, not, not, not Jerusalem. Here we're told that the city of David is, is Bethlehem. It's where David's actually from. It's where he was born. It's, it's where he was a shepherd. It's where he, it's where he grew up. And this city of David, Bethlehem, is, is, is called Joseph's hometown. It's where Joseph is from because Joseph, we learn, is in the line of David. He's from King David. He, he's the firstborn son in the family line of David, which means this, he would have been king. If Israel, if the Jewish people were not being ruled by Rome and there was a king, he would have been it, but he is a poor peasant, unimportant, with no power, man. And so Joseph heads back to Bethlehem, the city of David, where, where he's from. And that's important because God promised David, you will never cease to have someone reigning on your throne, David. You will always have forever. You will have someone reigning on your throne throne. David was from the tribe of Judah. Judah was one of the 12 brothers of Joseph, the 11 brothers of Joseph. Joseph was, was 12. 
uh, sons of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. And, and so David is from the tribe of Judah. And, and that's important because Judah was the one who told Joseph, kill me so that my brothers may go and live. Does that sound familiar? Kill me instead of them. Kill me in their place so that I will die and pay for their crimes so that they might live. Kill me that they might live. And so when Jacob later is pronouncing his blessing over his 12 sons, here's what he says about Judah. He says, may the scepter never depart from your family until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. May the scepter, like that, that signifies a, the, the rule of a king, may it never leave your family, may it never leave your line until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. So, so Joseph is from David. David is from Judah. Judah's father, remember, is Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob's grandfather is Abraham. And God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, through your seed, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Through your seed, Abraham, all the nations on earth will be blessed. Abraham, like all of us, is from Eve. God promised Eve in Genesis chapter three, after laying out the curse for sin, that through your seed, your seed will crush the head of the serpent. That evil snake that tricked them and brought the curse of sin upon them. Your seed, Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. So, so here's what you gotta understand. Here's what Luke is saying. Here's what the angel is saying. All of history, before this moment in Luke chapter two, all of history, all of the scripture is pointing to this moment. This is a big moment. Because everything God has been doing in history up till this moment is about this moment. Here's what Luke is saying. Here's what the angel is saying. That in Jesus, God is going to fulfill all of the covenants that he's made to his people, the, the covenant to Eve, the covenant to Abraham, the covenant to Judah, the covenant to David. In Jesus, God is going to fulfill all of his covenants to his people, all of his promises to his people. Angel says this, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. That's the, that's the X axis of Christmas. That's the first dimension. You've got to understand Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who fulfills all the promises. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that all of the old covenant, all the old Testament, all of history, all of scripture is pointing to all the prophets were speaking of and looking forward to this day, looking forward to this time when the Messiah would come and fulfill all of God's promises and covenants to his people. In Jesus, watch this, the covenant maker who is God has become the covenant keeper to covenant breakers like Israel, like you and like me. In Jesus, the covenant maker has become the covenant keeper to covenant breakers. That's the first dimension of Christmas that you gotta understand. Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly, 
Here's the second axis. On that 2D graph, you've got a vertical line going up. That's called the Y axis. And that's what we're gonna talk about next, the Y axis of Christmas. That's, the, that's a vertical line on a 2D graph. And, and so here's what we're gonna talk about now. We're gonna talk about what's going on between a holy God and sinful man spiritually behind the scenes. What, what, is, what is Christmas answering what, what problem is it solving between a holy God and, and sinful man? So we're going to talk about this vertical now relationship between us and God that will hopefully help us understand Christmas even more. You see, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Covenant, we're given God's standard of holiness and righteousness. And in summary, we get the Ten Commandments. It's like, it's like morality 101, Okay. It's just, it's the, it's the standard of God's holiness and righteousness. It's what it takes to have a relationship with God, to go to heaven when we die. It's what it takes for God to not snuff you out in a second because of your sin against him. So this is, this is basic morality, morality 101, okay, in God's eyes. And here it is, all right? You shall have no other gods before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall have no other gods before me. I'm the Lord, I'm the Lord alone. How, how, how many of you have ever put something ahead of God? You, you've, you've worshiped, you've loved that thing, you've sought after that thing, you've pursued that thing more than you pursued your relationship with God. Well, whatever it is, anything other than God, then here's what the Bible says, you're an idolater. You're guilty of idolatry. God said in the, in the 10 commandments in the law, you, 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 you'll, not, uh, you, you'll not covet. You won't desire what your, what your neighbor has. You're, you're, you're not going to covet. How, how many of us have done that before? Okay. In the law, in the 10 commandments, God said, you're not going to lie. How many of you have lied before? Okay. Yeah. You're a liar. All right. Hate to break it to you. Okay. How many of you have ever stolen before? Cheated on anything in life, in business, at school? You're a liar. God said in the 10 commandments that you're not going to commit adultery. Jesus came along and said, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. 10 commandments says you're not going to murder. Don't murder. Jesus said, I tell you, if you have hate in your heart for your brother, you, you've committed murder in, in your heart. So, so here's what we learn in, in, in the old covenant. We're, we're idolaters, liars, Thieves, coveters, adulterers. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. How many of us have ever broken the Sabbath? Right? I mean, that's, that's five or six out of 10. Morality 101. We got a problem, guys. We got a big problem. We've broken God's law. And God says in Genesis chapter three that the, the price for sin, it's death. That's the curse of sin. It's you die. So, so, so we've got a big problem. And that's the, the story of the Old Testament. God drawing people to himself because of his love and mercy and patience. Those, those, those people rebelling against God, God killing most of those people because of their sin, even using his own evil people to wipe out other evil people in nations because of their sin. And, and this is the story of the Old Testament, right? And God not killing some people because of the blood sacrifices that were made in their place for their sin. That they would take these 
perfect spotless lambs and they would lay their hands on it saying, this lamb is going to die in my place for my sin. It's going to die the death that I deserve to die because of my sin. And they would take that lamb, they would slit its throat, they would take some of the the blood and the meat and they would make a sacrifice and they would take some of the blood and they would sprinkle it on, on the mercy seat of God, which was the throne of God on earth in the Holy of Holies so that God would not wipe out every single one of them because of their sin. That sacrifice was the death that died in their place for their sin so that God would not kill them for their sin. Because you see, what you've got to understand is that God is love, but God is also holy, righteous, and just. And he must punish sin. And when you sin against God, you sin against an infinite and an eternal being. And so the consequence is infinite and eternal in its nature because you've offended, you've sinned against an infinite and eternal being. So, so, so this is the, the story of the Old Testament, sinning against God, God drawing people to himself, sinning against God, offering sacrifices to appease the wrath of God for sin, all the while pointing to, all of it is pointing to this Messiah who would come and die once and for all in their place for their sin. Isaiah 53, the Messiah will be led like a lamb to the slaughter. And the Messiah, this this lamb who will be slaughtered, will die for his people's sin, not for his own sin. And when he dies and comes back to life, he will make his people righteous by their faith in him. Go read Isaiah 53. The Messiah is led away like a lamb to the slaughter. And so when God shows up to announce that the moment has come, this Messiah that we've been waiting for has come. In Luke chapter two, who does he announce it to? Surely it's, it's rich people, it's powerful people this time, right? No, it's to shepherds. It's to shepherds. It's to people who are on the bottom of the social, economic, political ladder. These, these shepherds smelled, and I'll give you one guess of what they smelled like, okay? They, 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 smelled, they smelled bad. They, they, they didn't even get to go to worship in the temple because they were working the fields as shepherds, shepherding the sheep, that would die as a lamb sacrifice for the sins of Israel. That's who the angel shows up to. And, and, And do you remember what the angel said? We just read it in Luke chapter two. What does he say to the shepherds? This will be a sign to you. Now, Now, the sign is a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. It wouldn't have been a sign to many other people, but to these shepherds in particular, it was a sign. A baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger? You see, here's what you gotta understand. In the ancient Near East, in this day, in Bethlehem, these mangers that the baby would have been laid in are actually made of stone. They're they're not made of wood. And, And so, when the angel shows up and says, hey, the, the baby's going to be wrapped in swaddling lying in a manger, the, the, the shepherds knew exactly what that meant. Because these shepherds that lived near Bethlehem worked the hill known for raising the sacrificial lambs. These were the lambs that Bethlehem was famous for. And they would put these lambs in mangers to 
protect them. Now, not all of the lambs, just the perfect spotless lambs that were suitable for the blood sacrifices that would take place twice a day at the temple. The sacrifices that were made to cover Israel's sin. So here's what the shepherds would do with these perfect spotless lambs who would die in their place for their sin. They would swaddle those lambs and they would lie them in a manger to protect them. So these shepherds knew exactly what the angel meant. This will be a sign to you, a baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Wouldn't have been a sign to many other people, but a sign to them, they knew exactly what the angel was saying. This is the perfect spotless lamb who's come to die in our place once and for all time. This is the Messiah that's been promised. This is the lamb that Isaiah said in Isaiah 53 would be led like a lamb to the slaughter who would be pierced for our sin, would be beaten and whipped for our transgression. This is that lamb. They knew exactly what the angel was saying. So, so here's the why axis of Christmas. Here, here's what's going on between a holy God and sinful man. The angel says, Jesus, this Jesus is savior. He's Messiah. He's everything that God has promised. He's the fulfillment of all the promises made to the people of Israel. But he's also savior. He's the lamb that's gonna die in our place for our sin. Luke chapter two, verse seven says that they wrapped him in those cloths and they laid him in the manger. Luke 23, verse 53, we'll get to it like in a year. It says this, Jesus's body was wrapped in cloth and laid in a tomb. Jesus is savior. So we've made it through two dimensions. What's the third? Third dimension. Well, when you take a 2D graph and you turn it into a 3D graph, you add another line called the Z-axis. It gives its, its, its depth. And here's the Z-axis of Christmas. That's the third title that the angel gives to Jesus. And it's this, Jesus is Lord. He's Messiah. He's Savior, the angel says. He's Lord. And so now we're going to talk about what's going on in like this 100,000 foot heavenly view. What, what's going on in the mind of God? Let, let, let's look at this from God's view. And the way that we're going to do that is by looking at what the rest of scripture, okay, we're going for death. We're looking at what the rest of the scripture is saying about this moment. So, so here's what the rest of scripture says about Jesus in this moment. Jesus is, is Lord. This moment is referred to as the incarnation. That's what theologians call the incarnation. Incarnate. God in meat, right? It's God in a bod, all right? It's why queso con carne is so holy and good, right? It's, it's queso with meat, right? God in a bod. God with meat. God with Flesh. That's why it's called the incarnation. John 1 says it like this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. 
The word was with God in the beginning. So, so whatever the word is, it's God and it's with God. And John one then says this, and then the word became flesh. It took on flesh and it made its dwelling among us. God came down, took on flesh and made his dwelling among us and did life with his people because God's desire is always to be with his people. Romans chapter 10, Paul says it like this that his brothers, his fellow Jews got it all wrong. He said they thought God's way of making people righteous was by being good enough people, was by keeping the law. But Paul said no one could ever be good enough to be right with God. That, that's not God's way of making people righteous. It's not God's way. Tr making, trying to ha have your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That, that, that's not God's way into his kingdom. That's not God's way of being right with him because, because we never could. We, we already all saw this, right? We've all broken God's law. We've all fallen short. We, we've got a big problem here. And so Paul says that they, they thought that they could be right with God by being good people, by keeping the law. But Paul says, that's not God's way. So then what is God's way of making people righteous. Paul says, it's not going up to God. He says, because that would be to bring God down. And that's what's already happened. God came down, Paul said in Romans chapter 10, to rescue us. So, so, so we don't work our way up to God. Paul said, that's not God's way. God's way is coming down to us. Every religion on, this face, on the face of this planet says you got to do X, Y, and Z in order to be right with God or in order to achieve whatever afterlife you so desire. Christianity says, no, 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 that's not the way to God. God came to us. God came down. Go read Romans chapter 10. God came down to rescue us from our sin by dying in our place for our sin so that we might be righteous by faith by believing in God's son, Jesus, by giving your life to him, you're made righteous, you're given righteousness. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. In Philippians chapter two, Paul says it like this, God in this moment, in Luke chapter two, what we just read, God in this moment emptied himself, he took the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That at this moment in Luke chapter two, when God came down, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he took the form of a servant, he was born in the likeness of men in human form. Galatians chapter four, Paul it says it like this, that at this moment in Luke chapter two, one through 21, what we just read, Paul describes it like this in Galatians chapter four, that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law because they had broken the law that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. So at the set time, Paul says, God sent his son. Luke chapter two, this is the set time. This is God's time. When God chose to send his son, Paul says, born of a woman under the law to redeem us and to adopt us in his family by faith. It was the set time. 
Now, if you were here once again in our Daniel series, and if you weren't here, uh, you can go uh, catch that, that series on our app or on our podcast. But in our Daniel series, here, here's what we said. Here's what we studied. We talked about all the different nations who ruled over Israel and all the nations that were prophesied to rule over the nation of Israel. And it would all culminate with the Roman empire when the Messiah would come. And one of the things we said in that series, when we were talking about why is God letting these nations rise to power and then bringing them down and then letting a nation rise to another nation rise to power and then, and then bringing them and then allowing Rome, which was prophesied in Daniel that would come to power to rule over his people. Why, why, what is God doing in there? And we said, well, we don't know all the things, but we know one of the things that God was doing by allowing a nation, an empire like Rome to rise to power. Did you know under the Roman empire that almost the entire known world was speaking and writing in one language, the Greek language? Did you know that under the Roman empire, there was a highway system that was built where you could get from Jerusalem to almost every corner of the known earth at that moment. So God used an evil empire like Rome, evil leaders over Rome for his glory and for his good and for your good. How? Because at the time of the Roman empire, there's one language that almost everybody speaks and writes in and there's a highway system. How could that be of use to Jesus followers? Well, if they could write a New Testament in the Greek language and almost everybody on the face of the earth would understand it. And they would have a highway system to get this good news to almost every person on the face of the planet at this moment. Paul said, when the set time had come, God, make no mistake, is always in control. When things seem out of control, when you look at the world in the chaos and everything seems out of control, when everything seems out of control in your family, in your life, God is in control. When the set time had come, God sent his son. God was in control and is still in control of all of it. And he's using all things to reveal his son, to get glory for himself, for your good. He's using all of it for his glory and for his good. When the set time had come, God sent his son born of a woman. And then finally, Revelation chapter 12, a much different picture than the cute manger scene that we're used to, okay? Here's the Christmas story in Revelation chapter 12. A woman gives birth to a son that's going to rule all the nations that goes to war against a dragon who is Satan who wants to rule all the nations. Okay, a little bit different, okay? than the cute manger scene we're used to. We're, in Revelation 12, the Christmas story is a cosmic battle. It's a battle of life and death. It's a battle for the rule of God's creation, for the rule of the nations. It's a battle for your soul. It's a battle for your kid's soul, for your grandkid's soul. It's a battle for who's going to be king of kings and lord of lords. It's a much different picture than the manger scene that we're used to. And in Revelation chapter 12, here's what we learn, that this battle results in the son born of a woman crushing the head of that dragon whom Revelation 12 says is that old serpent, the devil. The son born of the woman crushes the head of the dragon. And that's Christmas. 
that at the set time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Revelation 12 says to do battle with the dragon for your soul, for my soul, and to rule the nations. So that's Christmas in 3D. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Savior. The angel says Jesus is Lord. He is God. It's the same word for God. So, so, so here's the big idea this morning. Let's, let's kind of summarize all this. The good news, angel said, I've got good news of great joy. The good news is great news when you believe the bad news. The, the good news is great news only when you believe the bad news. When is a savior good news? Well, when you know and realize what you need to be saved from, right? The, the, the cure is great news to those who are sick and need a cure. And so you've got to understand what you have been saved from. You've got to realize and understand and believe the bad news before this good news is great news. And the bad news is that there is wrath for your sin and my sin. The Bible is clear. Jesus emphasizes this as much as anyone, that the wages of sin is death. And if you're a Christian, you've been saved from the wrath of God for your sin forever in hell by your savior, Jesus. You've been saved from God's wrath. Now, the culture is gonna tell you something else. Our, our culture today is gonna preach to you that no, 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 you're, you are good enough and doggone it, people like you. You're good enough, you're worthy. That's not what the Bible says. The, the Bible says you, you've got nothing before a holy God. And even your righteous deeds, even your good works, the good things you try to do, they're like filthy rags in the eyes of, of God, of a holy and righteous God. You, you've got, the Bible says you've got nothing before a holy God. You've got nothing. You're, the Bible says you're, you're not, no, you're not good. You're, there's no, not one is good. You're not good enough. You're not worthy. Abraham said it like this, I'm dust and ashes. When, when I look at you, God, and when I look at me in my life, I'm dust and ashes compared to you. Moses said, like Forrest Gump, I'm not a smart man. I'm dumb. I'm ignorant. And I can't speak and, and I can't go and lead these people for you, God. And God doesn't say to Moses, oh, Moses, don't say those things about yourself. You got you to speak those things into existence and they'll come true. No, that's not what God says. God says, you're right. I made you like that, but guess what? I'm your God. You're not enough, but I am enough. The psalmist says in Psalm 22, I'm a worm. God, I mean, in, in your holy and righteous presence, I am like a worm. And then I love Psalm 41 or Isaiah 41, rather Israel's down and out about their captivity. They're, they're, they're in bondage over a, a ruling nation is over them. And God says to Israel in their fear, he says this, fear not you worm. He, call, he calls him a worm. Fear not you worm. Why? God says, because I'm with you. I'm your God. You're a worm, but I am your God. John the Baptist said it like this. I'm not even worthy to touch the sandals of Jesus. 
I'm not even worthy to touch his sandals. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter seven, there is nothing good in me. Jesus said it like this, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who understand who God is, who they are, and realize that they're poor, that they've got a problem. They understand the depth of their spiritual need and lack before a holy and righteous God. So, so, so watch this. The biblical answer to low self-esteem isn't higher self-esteem. It's the sovereign grace of God, where you understand who God is, who I'm not, but the grace of God bridges that gap. You, you ever seen those like dumb criminal videos? I saw one time where a guy pulls up to a drive-thru and the lady opens the window and he rolls down the window and he's got a knife and he says, give me all your money. And the lady in the drive-thru just goes, shuts the window. <laughs> and it shows the guy stand, sitting there with his knife in his car and he just drives off. He, he got nothing to do. Or, or there's another one where a guy goes into a rob a bank and, and he's smart enough to know that he's got to wear a mask so that he's not recognized. So the cameras don't see who it is, you know, but, but his mask is a clear freezer bag. And so he goes in, holds up the bank, the bank teller's actually giving him the money just laughing because he knows you're on camera. You're not fooling anybody. We can see you. We know exactly who you are. You aren't fooling anyone. You aren't hiding. We see you. God sees your sin. You can't hide. You can't ignore it. You're, you're actually saved, not by trying to ignore your sin or act like it's not a big deal. You're actually saved by God, by believing the bad news about yourself, that you are a sinner separated from God. The Bible says you're going to stand before a holy God whose eyes are like fire. He's an all-consuming fire. He sees not only everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, every motivation you've ever had in your heart, he sees it all. He's a consuming fire. His eyes are like fire. And that's who you're headed to stand before. This past week, I was preparing this message on Monday afternoon. I was sitting outside, it was a little cool. So I started a fire and, and I'm out there and I'm feeling all cozy and good. And I'm writing and reading. And, and um, I, I see this moth land on the edge of this fireplace where I had this fire going and, and it lands on the edge and it just starts walking to the fire. And I'm like, uh, buddy, stop. You know, I'm watching it like, what are you doing? Are you still like, what are you doing? Just, just no fear at all. Just walks right into the fire. And you know what happened when he got to the fire? In a second, he was gone. No more moth, right? Got burned up in the flames. No, no fear of the fire before him. The scripture says in Proverbs, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all starts, friends. It's the beginning of wisdom where you understand who God is and who you aren't. Now, I know today that's kind of a, a weird thing to say, right? Why, we don't really like that. The, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. I don't, I don't really like that. It sound good to me. Okay, I get it. Let me explain to you kind of the depth of the Hebrew there. Here, here, here's what it really means. It means to be, to be afraid of God. That's what it means. It's the beginning of wisdom, the Bible says to understand that God is holy and righteous. He's a consuming fire. And if you approach him in your sin, it's not gonna go well for you for all eternity. That's the bad news. But here's what the Psalms say about believing bad news, about fearing God. 
Psalm 31, how abundant your goodness, which you've stored up for those who fear you. Psalm 34, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Psalm 112, blessed are those who fear, they will have no fear of bad news because they fear God. You see, you're actually saved. You're blessed by admitting, by believing the bad news that you're a sinner and you need a savior. And the angel showed up in Luke two. He said, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to men. Why? Because of Jesus, our Messiah, our Lord, our savior, who is our covering for sin, who is our land that died in our place for our sin. At our church, we have what's called the City Seven. There's seven foundational truths that tell us what we believe in and why we believe it. And this week is number three. And number three goes like this. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, since all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, that's the bad news. Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so that I could be right with God. There's bad news, but when you believe the bad news, it makes the good news great news. It makes the good news great news that we have a king who loved us so much that came down and died for us. What kind of king is that? That lays down his life for his subjects. It's a king worthy of your life. It's a king worthy of your worship. And so that's how we respond to this passage this morning. Like, just like the shepherds did in 15 to 20. They said, let's go. Today's the day, let's go. Just like the disciples, they left their nets and followed him immediately. When you learn that there's a savior and you can have peace with God, you run to him today. Today is the day of salvation. If you've never given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus today. Jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Today, they said, let's go right now. And then it says they went and told everyone they knew about this good news of great joy. And then it says, Mary treasured these things in her heart and, and the shepherds went everywhere worshiping and praising God. So, so, so we treasure this good news of great joy, both in our hearts and through worship internally and externally. And then they said this, it was all just as the angel had said to them. They trusted, they trusted the word of the Lord and they were blessed with good news of great joy because they trusted that day they trusted they worshiped and they told everyone they knew would you pray with me god i pray that right now as we worship you would move in our hearts by your spirit just allow these words to come to life in our hearts god not going in one ear and out the other but let them come to life god in our hearts as we sing as we worship just like the shepherds today this day we're gonna let you know what we think about your good news of great joy and how it's changed us, God. And so, God, our, right now, we, we, we humbly trust and we humbly worship as we understand who you are and who we are and what you've done for us to bridge the gap. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we worship?